Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin in for Scott today. 82% of people who participated in a recent City of Hamilton survey reviewing the practices of the Hamilton Anti-Racism Resources Center believe racism is an issue in this city. A new survey shows Canadians rank debt a close second to death when ranking their biggest fears. Hamilton councillors launching 2020 budget talks and residents are, as of right now, looking at a 5.5% tax hike. And new legislation introduced would create a specialized team of provincial inspectors that would enforce animal cruelty laws in Ontario. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. If you're a middle-aged white guy like me, you're probably not encountering a lot of racism. But if you're not, according to this survey from the Hamilton Anti-Racism Resources Center, you are. So they launched an online survey not too long ago And to no one's surprise, I think, 82% of people who participated believe that racism is an issue in this city. 79% of respondents say they've experienced or witnessed racism in the past. And I think to no one's surprise as well, the most common location was in a public place. Survey was done between July and September by the Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center. It received a healthy response, 575 responses. 46% identify themselves as a member of a racialized group, 19% identifying uh, as a person with a disability, 8% identifying as Indigenous. So here to talk about this is the Mayor of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, joining us here on the Scott Thompson Show. Fred, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good, Rick. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Your reaction to the survey findings? Well, it's uh, it's uh, surprising numbers, uh, and you know what? Uh, I think it's certainly uh, certainly a wake up call in terms of those that were surveyed, in terms of the amount of incidents of uh, of uh, racism they've experienced, and uh, clearly this is an issue in our community, and uh, you know, in many communities, uh, you know, across the country, and in fact, around the world, and. All the more reason for us to continue to work towards uh, setting up the Hamilton uh, Anti-Racism Resource Center, uh, you know, that, uh, as you know, was paused, uh, you know, some eight months ago to uh, get it back on a uh, you know, more proper footing in terms of structure and funding and and uh, and personnel. And so uh, we want to make sure that we get this up and running so that those that are impacted by racism have have avenues and and can be provided some uh, some direction in terms of how they deal with those issues uh, going forward whether it's through policing or through uh, you know assistance in terms of being able to deal with that on a on a personal basis or whether it's uh, happening in their employment so uh we're moving uh, we're moving forward on that and uh you know it's been a long time coming and unfortunately it was paused but we're anxious to get it back up and running uh, as quickly as possible so from what I'm hearing, you're, you're surprised at that 82% of people who believe racism is an issue in this city. You didn't think the number was going to be that high? No, I think, uh, you know, based on the, uh, the number of respondents, I'm, I'm, I'm really quite surprised by the high number. But, you know, when you, when you add it up, I mean, we, we certainly want to have a more granular look at uh, how that all breaks down. But uh, in, on its face, it's a, it's a high number and uh, certainly is of surprise and, and uh, you know, certainly a potential indicator of, uh, you know, the kinds of experiences people are, are having out there uh, on an ongoing basis in our community. And, uh, you know, like we can say again that there's, uh, there's no room for, uh, you know, disunity or, or, or racism in our community or intolerance to, uh, you know, other, 
groups, uh, organizations, uh, you know, whether you're, you know, uh, no matter what your uh, your background is or wh- wh- who you believe uh, or who you worship, I should say, or, or what your uh, sexual orientation is, there's room and space for everyone, and it has to be a safe space in our community. And so to do that, uh, in part, it's, uh, it's about education. It's about uh, having the right supports in place for those that are being impacted. And, uh, and not, uh, you know, dismissing the notion that racism exists in our community, because, uh, you know, clearly it does. And, uh, the, the, you know, the, the legitimate question is, what are we doing about it? And, uh, you know, there's much that we have done in the past. We've had an anti-racism uh, division in the city of Hamilton. We've had that at the police services as well, and there's a lot of work that goes on in that space. This resource center was a, a, an added value opportunity for uh, partners to come together and provide additional resources over and above that. And I think that's exactly the right thing to do. wasn't too long ago that StatsCan came out and said that uh, Hamilton has uh, had Canada's highest per capita rate of hate crimes in three of the last five years, um, you know, coupled with this 82% uh, of people in the survey saying that racism is an issue in the city. Uh, um, does Hamilton have a hate or racism problem? I mean, is that fair to say? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't uh, agree with the uh, the, the folks that, uh, that indicate that we have some sort of a crisis. I don't think that's true. Uh, but uh, you know, I, and, and there's some dispute over the uh, the statistics uh, numbers because it doesn't quite jive with the the reported incidents that uh, the police have identified. So in Hamilton, uh, uh, hate crimes uh, in last year was five, and uh, hate incidents uh, kind of t- totaled up to be about twenty five. And so uh, I'm. I'm trying to rationalize how StatsCan came to that number. But having said that, uh, one one race issue or one hate crime or one hate incident is one too many, and uh, we all need to stand against that, and we all need to continue to work against that. You know, and and, the anti-Semitic, you know, Nazi Nazi insignia that was put on the uh, the, the Jewish uh, temple not too long ago is, you know, the kind of uh, hateful... Uh, unsettling uh, imaging that uh, that obviously impacts the Jewish community quite significantly, and uh, you know when we see what's happening in the j- transgender community and some of the uh, the hate that they uh, they get delivered to them, and uh, we we need to be able to protect uh, all of those people and make sure that they have a safe and rightful place in our community, accepted, uh, not just tolerated, but uh, included in every aspect of our our civic life. And so that's the objective. Um, you know, again, I would uh, I would argue against some of the statistical numbers that StatsCan has put together, and uh, we're we're actually looking into how they came to that conclusion relative to the statistics that our police services have. Uh, five hate crimes uh, uh, and twenty five hate incidents doesn't doesn't, in my mind, add up to a hate uh, you know problem in the city. But any any hate crime and any hate incident is a problem. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not in the category of creating a, uh, of labeling it a crisis. Uh, I know that in my heart and in the hearts of most Hamiltonians, uh, they are they are an inclusive uh, community and uh, want to want to give everyone the, the the opportunity to participate. That we embrace immigration and uh, bringing new people into our community and making it part of the fabric of our city. Uh, all of that is part of making a Hamilton for all as we uh, continue to go forward. And, uh, you know, no matter where you come from, what your ethnicity is, what your uh, sexual preferences are, or, or what your sexual orientation is, and, uh, and who you worship should not be a factor in terms of how you contribute and participate in our city.
Yeah, it's clear the hate crime uh, stats don't mesh with StatsCan because they're reporting 17 hate incidents per 100,000 residents. So obviously the numbers are way off. But another interesting part of this survey is that 67%, you mentioned the, the pause of the, the Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center, 67% uh-huh. say the ideal operating model for that center is one that the, sh- the city should not be operating. So talk about that process and what's happening there. Well, and that's uh, that's a legitimate, uh, you know, uh, uh, issue. And uh, you know, currently the the uh, the city was not operating the Hamilton Anti Racism Resource Center. It was actually done through the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion. Uh, so it was a, it was a, a an arm's length uh, organization that was actually chosen to uh, to be a partner uh, in it, even though it's funded by three partners. So Hamilton. Hamilton and uh, McMaster University were the kind of predominant funding partners. Uh, it was an outside agency that uh, that had taken it on uh, on as a as an independent board and as an independent organization. Uh, there were some challenges there that, uh, that I can't get into, but uh, there there was a need for a pause to make sure that it was uh, delivering the kind of. Uh, uh, impact and uh, and and reach that we we expected to deliver in our community, and so that was the reason for the pause. And we're hoping through the engagement process that we've had as a city, whether it was uh, the outreach that happened over the summer at various different festivals, or the engagement at, uh, event that we had last night to have people come and tell us what they think uh, that model should look like. Uh, when we get all that, when we decipher all of that information, hopefully we'll come out of it with a model that uh, that uh, will serve the community best. And I, I would say that uh, my my guess is that the city is not interested in in harboring the uh, Hamilton uh, Resource Center, Hamilton Anti Racism Resource Center. It's going to be an arm's length organization. I'd be willing to bet, and uh, but still have city funding. Uh, and a you know a mandate that uh, that we jointly create to ensure that we're delivering what we expect this resource center to deliver. We only got about thirty seconds here. The city uh, is going to study this this data, and, and a report is coming in December. Is that correct? Correct, exactly. And uh, from there, the council will make a decision as to uh, where this is going. And being a primary funder, and, and McMaster hopefully will continue to be a partner in this process. Uh, that uh, that we can come to uh, you know conclusion that uh, gets this back onto uh, you know a positive footing. Uh, the need is clear. Uh, you know, there's uh, many in our community that uh, that are impacted by racism, and uh, to be able to give them the proper supports and direct and, and uh, direction, and uh, you know whether it's uh, you know therapies or police police reactions or whatever it needs to be. That uh, that those resources are there for them when they experience the uh, the negative impacts of racism. Uh, I, uh, I I you know it's been about 15 years we've been talking about this uh, setting up this kind of a process and or I, I should say 10 years and it took us a long time to get there and a couple of years ago we thought we uh, we had the right formula. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite. Uh, that didn't quite measure up, and so uh, I think this time around we have a much broader engagement process, and in December we'll have a much more information to inform a future decision-maker. Mayor Fred, appreciate the time today. Thank you. Talk to you soon, Rick. You got it. Fred Eisenberger, Mayor of Hamilton, joining us here to talk about a new survey that shows 82% of people who participated in this survey from the Hamilton Anti-Racism Resource Center believe that racism is an issue in this city, and let's tackle that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a new survey that basically confirms 
Death and taxes kind of go hand in hand. Well, maybe not so much. When Canadians were asked in a survey to rank their biggest fears, death, of course, is number one. I mean, what else would it be? Well, a close second is debt. And it's probably not a laughing matter. Respondents say they're more afraid of debt than they are of public speaking, climate change, and yes, even spiders. The survey was conducted in October on behalf of Credit Karma, and it spoke to just over 1,000 Canadians, 1,052 to be exact, all over the age of 18. And here's their list in terms of debt on what they're afraid of. 43% of Canadians reported that they lose sleep over their finances. And among the top concerns keeping them up at night are debt, a lack of savings, and retirement planning. And among the most common financial fears were surprise or unexpected expenses and not having enough to retire. Let's bring in our next guest here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. His name is Andy Lister, financial advisor, IG Wealth Management, also co-host of the Planning Your Financial Future show, Saturdays at 8, right here on 900 CHML. Andy, good afternoon. How are you? Hi, Rick. I'm wonderful. Thanks very much for uh, for asking me to join in on this. You got it. So I guess we should not be surprised with any of these statistics. Well, I know it's true. And um, when you think about debt and death, it's interesting because I think it all stems back to the sort of fear of the unknown. And uh, of course, death, that's a big question mark for all of us. And then the problem with debt is the unknown factors. And as you said, you know, something like a surprise expense that comes along can tip the scale where suddenly now you're really feeling a lot of stress. And debt weighs on people. You mentioned stress. I mean, there are you know anxiety issues, uh, certain mental health issues. Health in general uh, takes a nosedive when you are buried in debt. Well, it's true. And, and when you think back as, uh, you know, I think as a young person, when you first start thinking about your finances and when you talk to your parents about finances, what was the one thing they always told you to do was to pay off your debt, right? And that was something that interesting when I was growing up, for sure, was drilled into our heads that getting rid of debt, not having debt, paying off debt was probably the, the key sort of financial takeaway that most of us got when we were young. And uh, other than that, maybe opening up a savings account or something, but it was it was pretty simple. But But, but debt was sort of something that was... I think for most people, uh, something that we talked about when we were young. And we're always seem to be more motivated to pay off debt versus, say, saving for retirement, right? Yeah, but are, are we more comfortable now with debt? Because we know that um, uh, incomes are not rising as fast as debt levels are. Uh, people have multiple credit cards. They have lines of credit. Uh, maybe they've declared bankruptcy. They, it seems that society today is a little more comfortable with having debt compared to the times that you talk about. And, and I was in that boat, too. You know, save for a rainy day. Pay off that debt. Debt is was a bad word once upon a time. It, it was, and I think it still is, and that's why there's so much stress around it. And, um, you know, if you're... If you're concerned about losing a job, if your if your health deteriorated, as you talked about, and you couldn't work, and your income was now reduced, you know, it's the debt that then becomes sort of that noose around your neck that feels like it's getting tighter and tighter. 
And, um, you know, I think there's, there is such thing as good debt versus bad debt. And good debt is always something where we've borrowed money to buy something that is going to increase in value. So, I mean, a home uh, in a typical uh, economic cycle, homes go up in value over time, at least within pace with inflation in general. And then, so if you're borrowing money to buy an asset that increases in value, you feel like, at least like you're getting ahead. Your net worth is increasing because of the value of your home. You're chipping away at your debt through um, you know, a monthly mortgage payment, and that's getting reduced. But as you're talking about, when you start adding on consumer debt, that's the bad debt. So debt to buy um, an experience, so it could be a vacation, it could be a new TV. Uh, these are things that either they're not an asset or they don't increase in value. So you're really sort of, you know, giving up the future opportunity to use that money by buying something today uh, for that experience or that sort of moment of pleasure. And, and I think that's, um, you know, we're all a victim of that. Our, our society sort of builds around the propaganda of having a lifestyle and all the things that we need to have to be, to be able to enjoy life. And sometimes for some of us, that means going into debt to get these things. And, uh, and I think that's where the cycle can really get into trouble. Our guest is Andy Lister. He's a financial advisor with IG Wealth Management, also co-host with Don Fox. Uh, Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock right here on CHML. The show is called Planning Your Financial Future. It's been on for years. You've done the show for years. You've helped clients year over year over year, thousands upon thousands of clients. Are those who don't have debt still worried about getting in debt? Uh I think that it definitely that sort of veil and the weight of death, uh, death, uh, sorry, debt <laughs> lifts from us, you know, as we begin to realize, you know what, we're, we're getting on track towards our goals. We have a plan in place. Uh, we're seeing progress. And once that, once you sort of create a plan around your debt and a plan around your other financial goals, retirement, et cetera, then it begins to sort of ease, I think, the pressure and the stress. And when I think about debt today, you know, if you're a, a person listening right now with a lot of debt, you know, you really have to think about what are, if there were five key things I would recommend, um, the, the first thing would be make a budget because understanding, you know, what's coming in and what's going out, I know it's not fun and uh and it can also lead to arguments with partners and spouses but budgets are such a valuable tool to understanding where you're starting from the second one is to reduce debt and there's sort of two strategies around this one is you could pay off the lowest balance first and some people like that because it kind of gives them oh you know what i've accomplished something i've got that one out of the way now other people would recommend you want to get the highest interest uh rate First, the credit cards with the highest interest rate, get them out of the way first. Either way is good. Whichever one gives you the most motivation and helps you achieve that goal is great. Number three is monitoring your credit. And this is something that you can get a free credit score online. It's important to know where you are. There might be some issues or suspicious things that may have happened with your credit, but it's important to know just in case you need the capacity to do a consolidation loan or something like that. Number four is educating yourself. 
And, you know, listening to programs like ours on Saturday morning, that would be the best. <laughs> but other than that, uh, there's great reading out there. There's obviously all, all sorts of things available online as well. But there's a great book, uh, it's a Canadian book called The Millionaire Teacher. Uh, that's called The Millionaire Teacher. I would recommend that one if you read one book about educating yourself. And finally, the fifth one, uh, and we've talked about this on our program Saturdays all the time, is automate your savings. You know, you've got that budget. You have to build something in to set a little bit aside for yourself automatically every month. If you're doing it through work, that's great. If you're not doing it through work, then you need to do something independently. Even if it's a fifty, hundred dollars a month, whatever you can do to get started is going to get you well on your way to feeling better about your debt situation. Great top five: budget, reduce debt, monitor credit, educate yourself, uh, automate savings, and invest in the book "The Millionaire Teacher." And listen to "Planning Your Financial Future" Saturdays at eight with Andy and Don. Here, exactly. here's another stat for you, and this one came from a recent Ipsos. Uh, poll found that the average Canadian is $200 or less each month away from insolvency. That's a scary number. I know, and, and you can you can ima- only imagine that that's going to bring along a, a lot of stress with it as well. And that's why, as you said at the opening too, Rick, is about how people are so concerned about a surprise expense. And um, But it's always interesting to me, you know, surprise expenses come along and we most of us seem to be able to find the money to do them. And so what's interesting about that is that, uh, you know, if you had a surprise heating bill one month or a surprise car repair, I know it's stressful, but it seems to get done and we get it paid for because, of course, we can't go without our car and we can't go without heat for our, for our home. So it's, it's to me, there's money to be found in our budgets. It's just a matter of trying to prioritize. And that's why automated savings is so important because it becomes a bill. And once it's a bill, it sort of gets wound into your routine every month and uh, you begin to adjust your lifestyle around that. So, so much of this can also come back to our lifestyle and our lifestyle decisions. And uh, and often affordability is tricky. I mean, it, you know, trying to rent in um, a two-bedroom condo or apartment in Toronto versus an apartment in uh, Hamilton or an apartment in Dunville. I mean, you, you would know you're going to pay less the further away you go from the major cities. Employment can be an issue, but obviously um, looking at your budget to understand where can we reduce, how can we make our lives more affordable to free up some capital on on a monthly basis. Our guest is Andy Lister, financial advisor with IG Wealth Management here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott. Let's talk about age demos, because I think as we get older, we tend to uh, I'm just guessing here, save a little bit more because we have a little bit more to save. We've been in the workforce longer. Maybe we've paid down that debt. Uh, let's talk about age demographics because this same survey says that millennials and Gen Xers reported being most concerned about having enough savings to retire. Is that a surprising statement to you? It is a little. I think there's been a there's been a shift in the uh, you know from the baby boomers who had a period of time where they were sort of living the life and and spending and and retirement was something that was down the road. And what I'm hearing from millennials is that that's something that they're trying to figure out. I want to do this sooner rather than later. And I think, I mean, retirement has been evolving over the decades to more of a graduated retirement as opposed to a cliff. It's maybe a slope where we're sort of heading down towards it and, and working out strategies around what our lifestyle will look like, uh, what our interests, how they will evolve. 
And we also we hear a lot about things called the side hustle, which is the the capacity to do a job or a contract for a period of time to make a little extra cash to supplement your lifestyle or even your retirement for that matter. But I think that um, you know that the, the weight of retirement gets heavier as you get closer on and you're in your fifties, et cetera, and you think, wow, you know, I'm running out of time. I certainly need to make sure my house is in order. And uh, and I think that that those boomers that are sort of 50 plus are really focused on 55 plus, I guess now, but they're focused on trying to make those last big push in terms of savings for retirement, paying off any outstanding debt, et cetera. And, but I, but I agree though, the millennials now are, this is something that's become more of a priority because I think either they've seen their parents who have struggled and they're thinking, I don't want to be in that same position. So this is something that isn't going to be important to us. And, uh, you know, that's excellent to see because I know we have to have a balance in our financial lives to make sure that, you know, we're covering off our day-to-day needs, but also the capacity to be able to save for the future is such an important skill. And uh, if, if you're doing that, you are so much further ahead than the average Canadian because we're just not committing to a regular, ongoing savings program for ourselves. Meantime, those members of Gen Z or Z, depending on which uh, side of the border you're on, those born uh, in 1997 and onward, uh, aren't likely uh, to be concerned about debt, or at least they're saying that they're more likely to avoid dealing with financial problems. And that shouldn't be a surprise because they might just be getting out of uh, post-secondary education uh, and, yes, are dealing with school debt, but they're seeing their career still ahead of them, and maybe they're thinking, yeah, we'll, we'll tackle this debt at a later date. Yeah, so these are people under age 25, and I think uh, you're right that their biggest concern right now is about their employment opportunity, their careers, and uh, and student debt is certainly there as well. Now, it'll be interesting because we did have some some relief that was offered potentially in our recent election. There was talk about deferring payments on student loans uh, until someone had a job, per se, or was making a certain amount of income, over $35,000. Uh, so I think that the that area, at least, they're paying attention to that. The government's paying attention to that, taking away some of the stress around student loans as well. And um, but yeah, so really the focus becomes: Can I get a job? Can I get into the career that I'm interested in, and and begin that as my main financial focus? Now, once somebody has a job and they can see that regular pay, and they can begin to then budget it now then becomes, let's talk about financial goals. Is it buying a home? Is it uh, perhaps purchasing a vehicle if that's needed? But, and then obviously the long-term savings, can we start something uh, on a monthly basis at a young age? Because boy, does that ever make a difference when you think about being 40 years, 30 years ahead of you to be able to save, the compounding effect is, is fantastic. Not to make light of this issue, issue because debt is, uh, you know, as, as we've said, you know, can cause some uh, health issues, mental health issues. But there is one line that I just have to mention. The survey found that 44% of Canadians would rather organize their closet than plan a budget. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's unbelievable. Well, yeah, that is unbelievable. Yeah. I, I'm looking at my closet at home and I'm like, no wonder it's a mess. But uh, it, it's, I could see that. I, I don't know what it is. I think that being told we can't 
spend money to enjoy our lives day to day causes us a lot of stress, I think. And it's um, facing the facts about how much I'm going to have to change maybe or how much do I have to change my lifestyle to be able to accommodate our budget and reach our financial goals. That means, um, you know, that means changing some of the things that we thought were priorities. And uh, so I can see how that's not easy. I think, you know, in many ways, we know we have financial issues. Uh, just like, for example, we might know we have health issues. And, you know, we might visit a doctor, you might visit a financial planner, and you might get advice, and you might receive a plan. The challenge is, can you implement that plan and actually execute it? Maybe it's a weight loss program. Maybe it's a change in your diet. And on the financial side, it's that regular monthly savings, getting rid of your uh, chipping away at your debt. All of these things mean a change in your lifestyle, a change in your behavior. And, you know, we're not, we're not wired sometimes to be successful that way. The easiest path is the, the path of least resistance. So, and, and stuffing uh, it in the closet, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just put it in the closet, yeah. shut the door, I'll worry about it later. Andy, we got to run. Really appreciate the time today and uh, have fun, as you always do on Saturday morning, with planning your financial future. Thank you very much, Rick. Andy Lister, financial advisor, IG Wealth Management. Yes, you can hear him and Don Fox Saturday mornings at 8 right here on CHML with planning your financial future. And good luck with your financial future. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. Hamilton councillors, as we speak, have launched into the 2020 budget talks and residents are, as of right now, looking at a potential tax hike of 5.5%. Gulp. That's unless we see, well, we could see a couple things. Higher user fees, service cuts, maybe a magic wand (laughs) will appear. Um, Thanks in large part to provincial funding cuts, this city is looking at a $52 million budget crunch in 2020. And if you're trying to do the math, 5.5% for the average homeowner would be just under $200 in terms of a tax hike. Let's bring in our next guest. She is the counselor for Ward 11 here in the city of Hamilton. Her name is Brenda Johnson, and she joins us now. Brenda, how are you? How are you? Thank you for having me. Not too bad, I guess. Um, Shocking is the word. Actually, I have a clip that uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, this was his comment regarding this year's um, budget discussions. Based on all the pressures that we're seeing so far, this is going to be a tough budget year. I look forward to it like I look forward to my next root canal. So we know that root canals aren't fun. <laughs> Actually, I said I look forward to it like I'm pulling out my toenails. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, yeah. I mean, this is tough sledding ahead. Yeah, it is. And actually, it started off in July at 6.7. So it's now down to 5.5. Uh, to get it down to even 2.6, which is still unacceptable to most residents, we have to look at at least $26 million of cuts. So where do we find that? And again, your tax increase will also depend on your assessment that impacted. Every four years they come in and they say your house is worth this much. If your house is worth uh, the increase in your house assessment, if it's by large lower than the entire city of uh, the average of the city of Hamilton, then your taxes, believe it or not, aren't as high. So, and conversely, if your, ta- if your assessment is higher than the city's average, then your taxes are not only the 5.5 right now, but plus whatever the assessment growth is. So uh, 2010, I can remember my first year in as counselor, uh, Glambrook was looking at a 16% increase. 
So this past uh, 2018 MPAC came through, and it turned out that wards one and two are the ones that are going to be facing a larger increase than the rest of us. Hmm. So it's it's not fun, let me tell you. I, we all pay our taxes, and, and nobody likes doing it, but this is not fun at all. You mentioned that just to get down to 2.6%, you're looking at $25, $26 million in, in savings somewhere. Where do you start looking? Well, and that's the challenge, right? Because uh, nobody wants to look at our rec centers. Nobody wants to look at the services that the, the residents benefit from. Um, and, and it's interesting, too, because not only are we getting the pressures of getting find the $26 million, in the meantime, we've had the Stelco lands and shopping centers and golf courses go to MPAC and get reassessed so they don't have to pay as many much taxes. So that's why we're, we're still behind the eight ball, because now we, we're not getting as much income from those particular um, avenues. And so now we've got to figure out where do we start from here. Um, so, yeah, the, the staff have put together a, a, a comprehensive list, whether it means cutting services or it goes to underutilized uh, facilities. Um, but, again, it's all going to be in cooperation with the, with the court ward counselors because I'm, I don't want any of my facilities closed down. They're, most of them are, are historical, number one. Number two, the, the communities use them very, very well. So uh, we've been able to do some partnerships in the past, so maybe we can look at something like that. But yeah, nobody's nobody's on board for cutting the services that are the most popular with our with our um, residents. You mentioned the list list from staff, and that's a you know the, the quote unquote mitigating options to help reduce uh, the tax hike. Um, when we're talking about service cuts, are there things on the table like, uh, you know, changing waste collection from weekly to maybe every two weeks? I mean, how, how and, and if so, how big of an impact would that have? Well, to be honest with you, that wasn't raised. It was the blue box uh, program that was raised because right now we're, we seem to have an endless supply of blue boxes, which really does come into the over $100,000 a year. So it's a great service for our residents, uh, but if you look at, for, at neighboring municipalities like West Lincoln, for instance, they give you your first two for free as you move into your new home. But if you lose them, whether it's a windy day or not, you have to pay for the replacement. And I'm not suggesting that we're going down that route, but that was one of the things that they used as a for instance for some of the things that we could be looking at in the future. I, you, you bring up an excellent topic because a year, maybe even two years ago, I lost my two blue boxes oh, on a windy day. Which is today. <laughs> so, yeah, so I went to City Hall. I said, can I please have two blue boxes because I, you know, I, I lost mine in a windy day. And, and the person behind the desk said, yeah, we've had you know, a lot of people come in with a similar story. Sure. Here you go. And I was fully expecting to pay for these blue boxes. Right. I left thinking, you know, uh, did I just leave with not paying for these blue boxes? But, you know, that's something that I think some people might be... Uh, okay with, but others might not be. Uh, no, and that's right. And conversely, you get lots of people who benefit on those windy days, and you go and visit them, and in their garage, they got all kinds of storage, <laughs> exactly. storage bins going on. So. And they're selling them to their neighbors. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, or just, yeah. Watch for Halloween this year. They might be handing them out. Yeah. What about user fees? Uh, you know, hikes at rec centers, pools, arena fees going up. What about well, that? user fees were always traditionally 2% every year. They always went up 2% every year because that, that helps to pay for the roof on the top, and it helps to pay for the staff increases and that stuff. So um, it was always 2%. When the list that we saw today, it could go up 3%. So, and just to give you an, an example, I asked the question today because we have been gradually increasing your taxes since 2008. I've been around since 2009. And uh, when you add it up from 2008, our, our city taxes have increased 23%. Ouch. Just under. 
Yeah, that's absolutely. That's 12 years worth. So I asked the question, okay, if you compare this to a home, how much is our utilities increased compared to, say, I was living at my house? Uh, my house insurance increased over the last 12 years. My car insurance, my car maintenance, um, uh, car payments, uh, mortgage payments, so that's the cost of borrowing. What are we in compared to the average resident? And the answer was the average resident saw an increase of 1.8% overall. Uh, your taxes went up 1.9%. So we were 0.1% higher than the cost of living. Wow. So even though it sounds horrific... At twenty three percent, it's actually in it's actually in line with the cost of living. We're chatting with uh, Ward Eleven Councillor Renda Johnson here on the Scott Thompson Show on nine hundred CHML. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, how big of an impact have the provincial funding cuts had on this year's, or at least the twenty twenty budget deliberations? You know what? That's the big thousand dollar, well twenty three million dollar question because every time we turn around. You're, you're hearing from the government that says, we're going to cut these services. And then shortly afterwards, you might hear, no, we're going to look at that next year. So I don't really understand of a huge grasp of how much the provincial government is cutting back because they, it changes on a daily basis. So we are looking at huge um, uh, decreases coming in for, for housing and transit and uh, some of the things that we've often um, relied on our provincial partners to help us out with so that we can keep your property taxes lower, that they're not. They're actually increasing. So the, the costs are increasing because it's, they call it downloading. So province doesn't want to pay for it, so they're going to let the, the municipal pay for it. And what people don't understand is it's still coming out of the same person's pocket at yeah. the end of the day. So even though your province is going to scream and shout, aren't we wonderful, we cut all of these taxes, your municipality now is is saying your property taxes just increased to cover those costs. Yeah, either way, we're paying for it. Last question for you. How optimistic are you that we can get it down to what some would call a respectable 25 2.6%, 3% tax hike? You know what? I'm always an optimist at the beginning of, of budgeting, and then at the end we all look like we've been in a cave for two months with <laughs> white faces and drawn-out looks. Um, our staff are amazing as far as looking to see where they can access more revenue or where they can get more grants, money. Uh, and they've been working fast and furious, even though it's like a swan on a lake, you know, smooth on top and underneath their feet are just paddling like crazy. And we're constantly in meetings with them in our office, um, even off-site, just to, to talk about how we can carve some things out and, and make it work so that the residents aren't feeling ripped off and still getting the level of services that they're, that they're experiencing now. So it's, it's a tough haul. But I, we can't predict anything. We're just ho- we're just being optimistic that we can get it down as low, as low, as low. Well, we wish you the best of luck because obviously we're all impacted. Uh, so Absolutely. good luck, Brenda. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. And you have a great dry day. You too. Brenda Johnson, Ward 11 Counselor here on The Scott Thompson Show. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A specialized team of provincial inspectors would enforce animal cruelty laws in Ontario under new legislation introduced yesterday. Solicitor General Sylvia Jones said that the team would be composed of about 100 inspectors but wouldn't say how much the new system would cost. She did say the bill, dubbed the Provincial Animal Welfare Services Act, would also include stiffer penalties for cruelty offences. Under the proposed model, the province will update prohibitions. For example, not allowing dog fighting equipment to be returned to their owners. Have inspectors partner with local police on criminal investigations. Train Crown attorneys to better support animal welfare prosecutions. 
Well, let's bring in our next guest. Dr. Kendra Coulter is her name, Department Chair, Labor Studies at Brock University, and she joins us now. Dr. Coulter, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. Your, your thoughts on this proposed legislation? It's promising. You know, this is an issue the public feels very strongly about. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tripartisan issue. Uh, there, you know, there are some issues that, that really unite us, and this is one of them. People want to see better for animals. And in order to protect animals, we need people. <laughs> we need people who are well-resourced, well-trained, and well-protected to do that. Um, and so, you know, I've been studying these issues for a number of years now, and am quite cautiously hopeful that, uh, that this is a sound plan, one that very much reflects my research findings, uh, and that will create a dedicated team of experts who are uh, publicly funded and focused on enforcing animal cruelty laws, and when possible, preventing harm in the first place in order to protect animals animals in this province. So how are animal cruelty issues right now dealt with? We're in a bit of a transition period. So for 100 years, what is a public responsibility, law enforcement, uh, has been offloaded to charities, so the OSPCA and its affiliated humane societies. So they've been doing this work for 100 years, primarily for free, only very recently did they start to get a little bit of government funding. Um, but earlier this year, the OSPCA announced that it would be backing away from enforcement, that uh, you know, as a charity, they didn't feel they were best positioned to do this, this difficult and important work. Um, so right now, we're in a bit of a, a holding pattern where uh, a lot of the existing officers are working directly for the government in a temporary capacity, and some individual humane societies are still doing enforcement. What this bill does is you know, sort of build on the expertise of these existing officers, but say what we need uh, are, are a team of, uh, of, of, of well-qualified, well-trained experts under the public uh, umbrella. So they're going to be uh, working directly for, uh, for, for government and providing us as people uh, and our, the animals with whom we share our communities um, that, that law enforcement work. So where will these inspectors come from? Will they be some from the OSPCA or some charities that say, hey, I'd like to you know, partake in a career to, to uh, continue on as an inspector? Those are the sorts of details we're going to see. We've heard there are going to be about uh, 100 or so officers, which is an increase on what we have, but I think that would be a starting place. I'd like to see us to get higher than that because Manitoba has about 100 and is a, you know, a much lower population than Ontario and, and a much smaller geographic region to cover. So some of the officers who had worked for the SPCA directly for years, some of them decades, um, very, very dedicated folks, have already taken temporary positions, so they would be on contract working for the Solicitor General, you know, for the, for the Ontario government. Um, and, but what I expect will happen is that the government will recognize that those who are still working for humane societies or who may have worked for the OSPCA or Humane Societies in the past, but are perhaps in another line of work right now, would be the ideal candidates to really build on their knowledge, their expertise, the commitment that they've shown. Um, but there might be some new positions opened up too. And, um, you know, in many ways you, you get what you pay for. And if we're going to, you know, these, this is work that's, that people have been doing for very, very low pay, you know, no pensions, minimal benefits, um, and if we're going to be moving this into the public sector, it'll be slightly better quality jobs. And we should all be pleased to hear that because this is such important work. We want people who are attuned to the details, who are paying attention, because this is first and foremost about animals. But animal cruelty is very much connected to the abuse of people. So you might walk into a situation where, you know, it's suspected, you know, abuse of a cat or a dog, but the children are also being abused or the, the woman in the home is being abused. It can also be a gateway to other kinds of crimes, firearms, narcotics, etc. Uh, and so it's really crucial that the people 
who are answering those calls, who are doing these investigations, are paying attention to the animals and, and, and have the expertise, but also are attuned to who else is in the home and what else is going on. And that's why this is actually really smart policy that will, will benefit all of us. That's a great point. With a dedicated team of inspectors as well, are we naturally just going to see more cases of animal cruelty because they'll be able to identify these situations? We may. I mean, the, the, there have been about 16,000, 15, 16,000 calls per year being investigated on, in Ontario. Um, and, and, you know, that's a pretty, pretty high number. What we're going to see with this transition, uh, or, you know, what, what we expect is um, detailed record keeping that will be uh, subject to, you know, sort of public oversight. We'll be able to access it. We'll be able to see. There'll be a streamlined phone number for the public to call for complaints. There should be equitable service around the province. So right now it's a bit of a, a, a patchwork or a tapestry, depending on where you live. Uh, we're, we're, I really want to see equity in terms of where people live, consistency, uh, engagement of veterinarians. There's going to be training for crown attorneys. It's really kind of tackling this as, as you know, multiple pieces of the puzzle, preventing where we can, but also responding appropriately to, to cases. And so sometimes that's behavior that needs to be uh, corrected. You know, there is a problem, but let's solve it. Sometimes people need resources and support, uh, you know, rather than the criminal justice system. And then when there are those very serious cases, we want the officers to be safe for doing the investigations, but also to know the proper methods for evidence collection, to be working with their local Crown attorneys when we need to use those more serious tools like charges uh, and and engage the court system. So, you know, I want to see some more details in terms of funding, you know, number of officers, et cetera. But the framework that's being outlined very much reflects what I've called for and I think is going to set us up well to to do better uh, for the animals of this province. Our guest is Brock University Labor Studies Professor Dr. Kendra Coulter here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott today. Um, you, you've spoken to many frontline officers as part of your, uh, you know, uh, robust efforts to get this uh, these laws changed and, and, and have a little more teeth to it. What did you say to them? What feed di- feedback did you get from them? It's a very dedicated group of people. Um, it's the only kind of law enforcement where a majority of the officers are women. It's quite unusual hmm. uh, for law enforcement. Um, uh, and they see some of the most difficult things in society. Um, and they're, and they're, 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 they have been doing this work, as I said, with, with less resources, with very inequitable resources. Some of them don't have two-way radios. Some of them have been using their own vehicles, uh, you know, et cetera. Uh, and so they are, have proven their, their dedication, and, and they have the knowledge. Uh, and, and so, you know, many of them are, are ideally positioned to take on new roles, and, and, and they want the best for animals. So they see this as, uh, you know, in, in most cases as, as a positive step. Uh, and, and, and I think everyone recognizes that. Animal welfare charities do fantastic work in terms of animal care, education, advocacy. Uh, they're doing a lot of work around low-cost spay-neuter, and, and, and they're very well positioned for that. Law enforcement is a little bit different, and, and it's probably best uh, positioned within the public sector. In terms of punishment or fines. Does this proposed legislation have uh, greater teeth for those uh, in terms of those who violate the laws? Yes, they've increased the penalty substantially. They will be the, uh, you know, once this legislation is is passed and enacted and and early in the new year, uh, they will be the stiffest penalties in Canada. Uh, Those will apply in uh, in a minority of cases. If you think of animal cruelty as existing on something of a spectrum, 
where a majority of the cases can be fixed, can be solved. Something more modest is sort of more of an, in, an infraction, um, where, where you know, the animal's not in, in serious danger and, and things can be corrected or fixed, whether that's you know, educating the owner or changing behavior, perhaps getting someone some resources. They need assistance with, with animal care or vet care, food, something like that. Um, and then, but then it's those very serious cases where, uh, you know, where, where, you know, the idea behind the, the much stiffer fines and jail terms is deterrence to try to prevent people from doing it. I hope we will see some of that. And noteworthy is that they have included corporate offenders. Um, so, you know, we can be, uh, you know, looking at organizations that are, you know, making money off of animals. You know, there was a case out east, I think, just earlier this week where 17,000 chickens died uh, in a farm, and there's questions about, uh, I mean, yes, that's a staggering number of chickens in, in one barn, but that's quite normal now, and that questions are being raised about, you know, was, was, this, was this negligence? How, how does, you know, how, how, how does, you know, a larger entity or, you know, even an individual, uh, you know, be responsible? Uh, and so, the, you know, the, 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 the penalties are stiffer, the fines are higher, and, and really crucial is that there will be training for Crown attorneys, because animal cruelty hasn't gotten a lot of attention from our criminal justice system, and so the provincial government has said it wants to recognize that fact and in be engaging with our Crown lawyers um, so that we can be using those, those, those um, you know, bigger teeth when it's warranted. I'm I'm thinking, and I'm sure our listeners are thinking at this point, you know, this, these types of things are long overdue. Absolutely. People feel very strongly about this, uh, you know, that this issue, and you know, again, it cuts across party lines. It cuts across political beliefs. People understand that animals are part of our families and our communities. They deserve to live lives without suffering, and this is long overdue. Um, so, you know, we still want to see some more details. Want to ensure that there is sufficient funding to to properly. Uh, service the whole province and and then support the frontline officers. But, you know, it's a promising day. The government got it right on this one. And I think it was yesterday that I heard from the former president of the OSPCA that says right now when someone, when an, when an individual is fined, they're fined $1,000. And if, if they're fined again, they're fined $1,000 again. Does this legislation change that? Or are those, do those fines increase? For repeat they offenders? Yes, yes. Okay. They're, they're, you know, the, the government has uh, you know, released legislation. And, you know, if people are passionate about this, I would encourage your listeners to, you know, go on the Ontario government website and, and, and read the, the law. It's, it is actually quite understandable. It's written in accessible language that will make sense to people. Um, and and they've, they've given us an indication of, of, of what these uh, the changes will be. And so there are, uh, you know, in some cases, doubling of offenses. So, for, you know, for example, in uh, the case of a corporation, the first offense, the maximum is 500000 uh, And in a subsequent offense, the new threshold would be a uh, million dollars. Wow. So once this legislation kicks into place, uh, that there's going to be some, you know, much stronger teeth. And again, for those corporate corporate offenders, I think that's a, a, a going to be a really powerful motivator for them to clean up their acts. This new law goes in effect on January 1st, 2020. Dr. Kendra Coulter, thanks for the time today. Thank you very much. Dr. Kendra Coulter, Department Chair, Labor Studies at Brock University. And uh, yes, this specialized team of provincial inspectors are going to be enforcing animal cruelty laws in this province. That legislation introduced yesterday. And as I said, yes, long overdue. Too many animals, whether they're pets, livestock, zoo animals, those in aquariums, are taken advantage of, and their conditions are just not anywhere close to ideal. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.